Welcome to CBuzz, Columbus's first business-focused podcast presented by the Columbus Chamber of Commerce and Capital University. My name is Michaela Hunt, brand journalist and your host for CBuzz. And this really is the show where we bring you the best stories from the Columbus business community. We're coming to you from our home at Capital University's Convergent Media Center. And this center, if you haven't been here, is a really collaborative space where students and faculty from diverse areas of study are empowered to work together in new exciting ways, whether it's music, film, creative writing, digital media, or something else, just a terrific spot in our community. And we're here today with Porter Wrights, Brett Thornton, and Jack Ravel. So Brett and Jack, thank you so much for joining us today. Our pleasure. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Good to have you. Now, you have both been with Porter Wright for a number of years, working with private and public companies of all sizes, going through mergers, acquisitions, securities, transactions, you name it. And today, they're really here to share this with you, the audience, and the five legal pitfalls early stage companies should avoid. So that's really what we're going to talk about. I feel like this is a very educational podcast today that we all need. Um, so before we jump in to these pitfalls... Tell us a little bit about yourself. I'll start with Brett. So I've been with Porter Wright since 2001. I focus on mergers and acquisitions, corporate financing, general corporate work, uh, and that includes a lot of work with small businesses, entrepreneurs, and emerging businesses. And at any, you know, not at any, but in various points in the growth cycle, uh, guys that are just trying to form a company, get off the ground, find some customers up through companies that have sort of gotten past the point of uh, establishing their viability or looking for um, institutional types of equity financing and looking to, to grow and emerge, create you know, jobs and economic activity in the community. And we have a fantastic community to represent that entire evolution that you just talked about. I think about our startup community, which is strong, robust, um, and we're moving actually the needle forward with some of those things to those other companies that are legacy companies. So that's fantastic. And Jack, tell me a little bit about your background. It's a similar practice. Um, I've been with Porter for uh, 12 or 13 years since uh, law school, and I do mergers and acquisitions and corporate securities, everything from raising capital for some of these startups that you're talking about to SEC compliance for public companies and all kinds of contractual relationships as well. So the five legal pitfalls early stage companies should avoid. If you had five, you know, it's like that list of what to do and what not to do. I take it that you have seen these consistently. Yes? There's a lot more than five. Yeah, there's more. <laughs> right. I mean, these are the five. For the that, we pared it down for a half hour <laughs> yeah, these, program. These are, these are the five that are good for the, uh, the yeah, exactly, the, the spiel we do. But, so um, the top top five or top? Top five. Yeah. The, the, the ones that for which we have the best um, horror stories, I guess, right? So to make this a... Uh, both informative and entertaining um, program. Well, we enjoy that. So we appreciate <laughs> that you brought that today. Yeah, the five maybe for which we get the most questions too. sort of an excuse to talk about the topics that we get questions about from startups and entrepreneurs as well. And, and, and it is. There are things that I think people, they're, they're not, they're obvious to us. They're not obvious to small business owners or even middle-sized business owners. I mean, I think these things are relevant not only to emerging and startup businesses, but to all businesses. And there are things that get overlooked and there are things that, you know, that can create avoidable problems, right? Which is right. You know, the point of doing presentations like this, you know, is to educate people and to encourage them to go call lawyers, hopefully us. Right, of course, <laughs> right? But you could, educating them is the first step, right? Before they right. go. And, and this gives them a little bit of information ahead of time. Right. So pitfall number one, we're going to jump right in. 
uh, let's do it because these are all very interesting. And I speak as a business owner and a small business owner looking at these formation follies um, is is what you call it. And you know, businesses can form as an LLC and S core, C core. How do you know which one makes sense for your business? And what are some of the common mistakes made from an entity standpoint when choosing that, when checking that box? Yeah, there's there's not a right choice for every business. It depends on sort of what the business looks like. And there can be different choices at different points in the life cycle of a business. But if you're looking to form a business and you're considering what form to take, um, it depends on what you're going to do, what you, what your goals are for, you know, how the business is going to run, how it's going to make money and what you're, you're going to do with that money. So, you know, for, for the most part, when we talk to entrepreneurial business persons, emerging businesses that are looking to grow and might be on a fast tech track to grow, we tell them right out of the gate, you're, you're not looking at an LLC or sorry, you're not looking at an S corp. You're looking at a C corp or an LLC. And I, I use the example, I think an S corp is more, it's a small business. You know, it's a guy and his uncle who are going to do maybe a meaningfully sized landscaping company, but that's, those are going to be the two owners and that's all they're ever going to do. Because if you do an S corp, there's all sorts of restrictions on, on what you can do from an equity standpoint with an S corp. If you do an S corp, you can never get outside entity financing, which is going to preclude any type of any real private equity financing. Those guys aren't going to agree to come in and invest as individuals. And an S corp has to have individual United States citizens are the only types of um, stockholders it can have. There are some there are some uh, qualifications to that. Uh, you can have a single member LLC if it's a straight flow through, but but the general rule is it's only single individual U.S. citizens. And so you can't go get private equity financing. You can't go get venture capital financing. You can also only have one class of stock. Again, there's some minor um, qualifications to that. For the most part, one class of stock with one class of rights. You can never do preferred stock, which any sophisticated investor's likely going to want. You can't do certain types of debt financing where you would have warrants or other type of equity instruments. And so you can't compensate employees in a different way than it, it, you it, want to pay yourself as the founder, right? It, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you, equity compensation is really hard um, because of that, because you can only have, you know, one class. And so in, if you're not going to have a small business, it's what's the old, it's the, are you going to, you know, it's, if you're going to earn money with it and distribute it out, an S corp is good and it can have some benefits because there are some limited tax benefits to having right. an S corp. I've heard, I've heard that. I will right. say what mm-hmm. I see most often is people get it right in the beginning. So they, they have a business idea that they feel like could grow and scale. And so they, they do their homework and they think, oh, you know, an LLC makes sense. And it oftentimes does. I think that's typically it's the, nice, the entity it's of easy, choice. It's right. Right. And then I think what happens is um, they, their business is successful. They're making some money and their accountants oftentimes tell them, hey, you know, right. you, you could save some, you know, FICA, Medicare tax if you guys elected to be taxed as an L- as a S-corp. And they just, they do it. They say, oh, that's great. You know, on the numbers make perfect sense. But I have they, a good friend this happened to. Yeah, but they don't think about, okay, then they, they come back in a couple of years and they say, well, now we want to go out and attract investment, like to your point, Brett, from, a, you know, some kind of venture fund or something. And, and the venture fund's going, well, we can't invest as individuals in your S-corp. Or they come out and they say, well, now we want to hire the CEO and we, can, we don't have enough cash to pay this person the market rate. So we want to give them some equity, but... We don't want to give them, you know, the common interest that we have. We want we want to get paid back first with some kind of return before the CEO gets to participate. And those are two challenges that. So Brett said something, Jack, about you can choose to change 
Sure. Is it all about the timing of choosing to change from an LLC to an S Corp? I mean, oh, t- oh. tell me. I think that, well, this is where we get really unqualified to talk about. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I mean, and we, so the, the problem with it is, is you can go from, you can make an election to go to a corporate form of taxation. You can go from an LLC and you can elect to be an S Corp or you can elect to be a C Corp. For, for tax purposes. For tax purposes. And you don't, and you don't have a tax event, right? But you can't go the other way. Uh-huh. If you go the other way, you get new, you wind it's up. Usually with, a tax event. It's a deemed liquidation. Uh, with the way the, the taxing authorities look at it is all the assets that they have been, you know, distributed out at whatever their value is, and you pay taxes on the difference between your basis and their current value, and that's that's onerous, right? That's not an option for a lot of companies, and so you, that's something to to pretty strenuously avoid. So, for a for, from a legal and investment standpoint, though, making this choice for the right one initially is really important. It sounds like. Yeah, I mean, any, any choice is important, and I think you know, with a little bit of talking to somebody who knows what they're talking about, it's not a difficult choice. There's just, you know, there's a handful of options and it's good to talk through what the options are. And, and you can, and one of the things that I was talking about where you can change, you know, you have companies and I've had companies that thought they were on the fast track to meteoric growth. So we started out in, in one case, uh, you know, an LLC. And then, you know, after a couple of years, it became evident to them that they didn't need to attract a lot of capital, right? right they started right. making a lot of money. They started growing um, and they decided they weren't going to dilute themselves from an equity standpoint. So they are an LLC and they elected S-Corp taxation so they could get the FICA and Medicare benefit. And they're completely happy with that, right? Makes um, so much sense. Yeah. yeah. But that's, you know, that, that's, that worked for them. If they had started out as an S-Corp and then we did decide that we needed to go out and attract capital for growth, we would have had problems. So, right. so I don't want, I think we spend enough time, you know, I don't want to spend the whole time beating up on an escort. No, <laughs> yeah. In fact, I was going to say, you know, it's a little, it's a little in the weeds. I think when I think formation and sort of the issues that crop up, what I often tell people is, you know, this allows you to just have a conversation, especially if you're going to have a partner about, you know, everybody thinks it's going to be successful and it's going to go well, and we're going to be a perfect team and we're each going to put in an equal amount of work and we're each going to get an equal amount of money out. But the, the mistakes I see people make is they don't have an agreement that talks about what happens if um, somebody doesn't put in the same amount of work as the other one? What happens if uh, somebody, you know, God forbid, dies or gets a disability? And- well, and, and that's honestly a great segue into pitfall number two, which is capitalization catastrophes. So talking a little bit about the tough questions here about life and work, what do I do if an owner passes away or wants to sell a part of the business? And what kinds of questions should business owners be considering in the beginning of the journey? I was told in some partnerships, you got to you got to plan for the marriage, but you also have to plan for the divorce as well. Right. And it's it's easy to plan. It's it's not hard. I mean, there's there are a few um, normal ways that people deal with those situations in a 50-50 partnership. And, you know, different people choose it differently. Like how are we going to resolve a deadlock? Or what if... Brett and I form a company and Brett wants to be able to sell. Do I have to go along with that or can he drag me along? And usually the question is answered by, you know, is it truly a 50-50 partnership? Did somebody put in all the money? And the other guy is just the, you know, the, the, the worker initially. And, um, you know, I don't know that there's a quick answer. Um, or I, I mean to say, I don't know that it's a complicated answer, but it's just results from the conversation is different. It can be different for each sort of set of business owners. Yeah. And, and you can track back a little bit, I mean, to lead out of the discussion about entity formation. I mean, the first thing you look at with capitalization is how are you going to capitalize it and with what, what type of equity are you going to issue? And that goes to the LLC versus the um, C-Corp. Um, I mean, the difference between that is, is 
LLC is substantially easier to deal with from a formality standpoint Mm -hmm. and provides pass-through tax treatment. A C-Corp is preferred by private equity, by um, institutional-type investors. And so if you're going to go and try to affect one of those transactions almost right away, go ahead and be a C-Corp because they're going to make you convert. If not, it might make sense to be an LLC for a while. And one of the reasons it might make sense to be an LLC is what you can do at the outset um, flexibility with respect to the type of equity you can issue. Um, there's some nice features to an LLC. So, you know, this is a pretty technical point, but I, I, it, you know, what Jack talked about, if one person's really going to be a worker and one person's going to contribute a lot of capital, one thing people have to be careful with is not creating tax events uh, for people that they're not expecting or that neither party understands they're even creating by having a, a true, you know, filed existing entity Having one person put, um, you know, a substantial amount of money or true capital in and then giving the other person 50% when that person really is just going to contribute efforts. Because if you give that person, if it's a C-Corp and you give them 50% of the stock and one person put in $500,000, that person has a tax event that day of $250,000 and that's a disaster. Right. right. So, so one of the things you can do with an LLC, I mean, you can do this with a, a, a corporation as well, but you get into more complicated, restricted stock. Um, instruments, stock options. Um, you can do it. I don't want to imply you can't do it. And we do it all the time when it's necessary. But in an LLC, you can issue something that's called a profits interest and you can split out. It's not like an S-Corp. You can have as many classes of equity with whatever features you want. And so you can have a person put in $500,000 and own 50% of the equity. You can have the other person put in nothing if you want and receive 50% of the issued equity, but that constitutes a, a profits interest. And when you issue that to that person, if you structure it correctly, that person has no tax event on the day it's issued. They, but the other person has a liquidation preference, which is fair. If it were to be sold the next day, they'd get their $500,000 back. The other person would get nothing. That's why they don't have a tax event. But if the thing is worth a million dollars two years from now and they sell it, the first person still gets the first $500,000 back. They split the second 550-50. But you can do that, and that, that I think, properly reflects the understanding in, in the arrangement, right? But some people don't know that. They, they don't. don't. Right. And, and, and you have to ask the tough questions, and I take it early on. I mean, so you guys help facilitate those conversations sure. early on in the business. So, so how do you prepare those folks for that conversation to make sure that they're having, they're, you know, asking those difficult questions? I mean, I, I'm in favor of keeping it very simple. I think, you know, when you think about sort of theories of ownership for a business, most people would say, well, ownership means how do I get paid money when the business makes money? And you can answer that question a lot of different ways, as Brett just suggested. And how do I get money if the business sells or dissolves, right? And when you put it to people like that, it becomes a lot easier to have the conversation about, well, I put in the money first, so I should get my money back first. And that was money that was held up, invested for a while, so I should probably get some kind of return on it. And that that allows you to have all those questions. When you think about what ownership really means, it's the ability to somehow get cash out of this business. I think that's everybody's goal. Yeah, and it is. I agree. I mean, you always want to begin at the beginning and keep it as simple as possible. And then those line of questionings branch out into 15 different necessary directions. But you do. You start with what are you going to put in and how do you expect to get paid? Under what circumstances? Then you can get into all sorts of how are you going to treat allocation of losses? How are you going to do this and that? But to your point, Jack, and the question you asked, how do you start the conversation is it's simple. What are you you going to put in and how are you going to get paid? And we see that conversation when it's two partners starting their own business or when it's uh, business needs financing and we're the ones representing the the investor. They they ask the same question. I'm going to put this money in. How am I going to get it back? And when? 
So let's talk about fundraising mistakes, because that's pitfall number three. Um, of course, every business owner, we, we want to comply with the necessary rules and regulations when it comes to selling securities. What are some of the common mistakes, I guess I would say, uh, businesses make with fundraising? And what can they do to avoid this drawback? I, I, you know, I think um, I always find this interesting because entrepreneurs have this um, they, they get fundament, fundamentally offended when they find out a few of them that they can't just go up to folks and say, I've got this business idea, come one, come all, and invest in my business. I mean, it seems like un-American that you shouldn't be able to go out and ask whoever you want, whenever you want, for money. And I Because we're so excited about right, the concept. Right. right. And I think that works with friends and family and um you know, if you think about the theory behind the securities laws, it's because you're selling a piece of paper, right? You're just saying, give me some money. I'll give you back a piece of paper. You're an owner now. And there's a lot of room for fraud. And as a result, just like insurance products um, over the years, there's this regulation system that is built up that explains sort of what you can and can't do. I think, um, you know, the biggest mistakes we see are over promises and probably omissions. And that's what makes national press too. I mean, you see all kinds of entrepreneurs who get in trouble for promising things about their technology, what they hope it will do in the future, but what it doesn't do currently. And, and, you know, another thing is that if you don't talk to anyone about securities laws, they're very easy to inadvertently violate, right? And then you create big problems, not only looking at penalties or rescission rights for your existing investors, but if you do your friends and family or a couple early rounds completely wrong and you have multiple investors that are non-accredited and that, that and I, we don't have to necessarily get into accredited versus non-accredited, but they're very characteristics you want to make sure that your even your initial investors have so that when you get to the next investment with the sophisticated institutional investor, that your cap table isn't a mess, right? That it's not a disaster, that they don't come in and find out that you have a sizable number of non-accredited investors who have participation rights to be involved in the next round because then you have all sorts of heightened information disclosure requirements and things get a lot more expensive and complicated and your transaction partner down the line isn't going to like that. I mean, it can put transactions at risk. And so doing it right, talking to someone, understanding how to do it. And, you know, this goes to the entire getting the business prepared for financing. Talk to you about your agreements, your IP, all the things we're talking about but also about your securities offerings. When you go fundraise, do it right. Do it in a, in a clean way so that you don't create problems down the road. Well, and I don't know if I can go down this road, but I'm thinking of, in March, Theranos, if I'm saying that properly. And I don't of, know how you say it either, but that's what I was thinking of, But that's what you were too. thinking of, yeah. because that was a situation where it sounds like, from what's been reported in the media, there were some omissions, and in terms of disclosure, there were some things that weren't there. Right. I think, yeah, Brett hit on the two things. You, you either blow your exemption because you didn't follow the steps for um, qualifying for whatever securities exemption you're trying to qualify for, or in the, in the case you're raising, you have made some kind of misstatement or some kind of omission, and um, you potentially cause problems down the line for future investors, or you've given current investors an ability to back out if their investment goes poorly. And, you know, we've both certainly seen that where, um, Everybody doesn't, no one thinks that the investment's going to go poorly, but if you've blown the exemption or if, if, um, if you've omitted something that it gives a, an investor the right to come back and say, uh, well, you never told me this or what you told me was wrong. 
and you don't have the proper documentation showing, no, we disclosed all the risks to you. And um, then, you know, they have the ability to get their money back. Right. And that's, you know, death to the company. Well, it's death to the company. And if there's the potential for rescission rights, you're later in time, more sophisticated investors don't want the specter of that hanging mm. out there. Right. They don't want to invest thinking, well, regardless of how things are going, if these 15 people get impatient, they can do a rescission um, offering or make us do a rescission offering and blow the whole thing up. Mm-hmm. That's not good for the next tranche of investment and their interests in the in the enterprise. So. No, it's not. Let's talk about um, pitfall number four, leaving intellectual property unprotected. Um, businesses need to be protected in this area of, of IP. So um, what should businesses really be, do, be doing, I should say, to secure their trademarks, patents, and copyrights. And I've been in, this has been a part of the work that I do. And so I find this very interesting, especially for creatives mm-hmm. and when you're creating um, a, a product. So let's talk about what we really should be doing. Because sometimes when you're starting as a small business, you know, you're not thinking that you're thinking, okay, I need to check the box of LLC or S core, whatever I'm going to do. And, and these other things, having these conversations, but when it comes to trademarking, that's a whole different I, I want to say ball game, but it's it's not within that same conversation. I feel like it's a, another conversation we need to have. Yeah, I mean, I, IP is one of the things that it's so easy to get right if you talk to a lawyer to begin with, because it's not expensive. The documentation necessary to establish your baseline rights is, is really simple. Really? Yeah. I mean, and it's not, it, I mean, the type of IP you're talking about is really registered IP, patents and trademarks, but there's even softer types of IP trade secrets and things like that that derive value from the fact that they're held in confidence and not available to the public. But the problem is, is with all those things that if you, and and this is what a lot of companies, this is a true pitfall that people mess up is that they don't make sure they have agreements in place with employees and contractors that in, in the initial stages of these companies is sometimes where there's the most activity involved with product development and the creation of IP. And they don't get agreements in place with employees and, and independent contractors And then down the road, again, and I keep bringing this up because this is the specter. This is why people don't get help is because it's not evident to them that they're making a mistake. No alarm bells go off. The IP police don't come and drag you off to IP (laughs) jail. They do not. Right. So so they don't know they've made a mistake until they get to the transaction. They talk to their lawyer finally because this is now it's millions of dollars at issue. And there's a representation in the document that says you have made sure that every employee and contractor has signed an agreement establishing that the company has sole and exclusive ownership rights and into all IP associated with its business. Well, they haven't. They didn't have anybody sign any of those. And so then what happens is, and it's fine, if you're selling the business, if you're raising capital, your upstream partners, they don't care. I mean, they're, well, we don't think it's a problem. And, you know, Joe's a good guy, and I don't think he'd screw us. He wouldn't steal from us. Yeah. Right. So they don't think that that's going to cause any problems. But what their partners will tell them is, fine, go get these signed. And then what you find, and we see it all the time, is you thought Joe was a great guy. And you go to Joe and you say, we really need this signed so we can do our deal. Do you mind signing this? And he's like, you know what? I did a lot of really hard work, and I think you owe me about fifty grand to sign that. Right, Joe feels like a tinge of guilt it, right, it, as he it, cashes your check. It, exactly, <laughs> and and so I mean, if you hire your lawyer, I mean, I'll five hundred bucks. I'll do an agreement that you can use for every one of your contractors. You don't do it, it's going to be a bigger, more complicated, expensive problem down the road. Yeah, I think of IP as protecting it from outsiders, which is the example you gave, Michaela. Of well, this is the IP we've created, so we don't want third parties to infringe upon it. So we need to register it or show that it belongs to us. You said that in the legal way that it needed to be said, yes. (laughs) And then I think Brett's example is protecting your IP from your insiders, which are your employees. And, you know, no one thinks that that will ever happen, that their employees might. 
but you can see it from the employee's point of view sometimes. They think, well, I, that wasn't what I thought the deal was. I thought I actually owned part of this IP, or at least some of it. I, I didn't want to assign it to the company. That's why I never signed anything that said I assigned it to the company. And, and the bigger problem is young companies that are a bunch of young people that don't look at each other as employees. They're partners, right? And they're all working on this together, and then one sort of fades away and isn't involved anymore. But there's you know compiled software code, and there's his name is all over the developer notes, and there's no agreement with him. Maybe that guy left on good terms. Maybe he didn't. And if he didn't, you got a problem. Right. Yeah. Um, let's talk about pitfall number five, signing off on third-party contracts, I should say. Um, it can be really tempting to sign a deal that looks really good on paper. It just it, it looks good on paper. But how can business owners ensure they're getting the most out of those deals? So that almost goes back to what we were just talking about with those third parties a second ago and IP. But, I mean, there's so much more than IP involved in those kind of partnerships um, in general. So there's so much involved, more involved than IP in general with those. So who wants to jump on that one? I mean, in terms of those third-party contracts. Uh, yeah, I think I think uh, it's more than IP for sure. It's any contractual relationship. I think you're right when you say that the deal looks good. Uh, that situation comes up and you think, well, or the, the flip side is, well, this is the best deal we can get. We're young and Right. We, don't, we don't have any leverage, so we're going to take whatever terms the vendor or the bank or the landlord gives us. And I think what we tell people is if you're big enough to be bankable and have a loan, you're big enough to have a lawyer look at the loan agreement. If you're big enough to get tenant space, you're big enough to have a lawyer look at the uh, lease agreement. And even though you may not be able to change commercial terms in a material way, there are um Many things that can often um, are just sort of risk allocation. So there are provisions that are often just completely wrong. You know, the the landlord's not sophisticated, or the vendor, or the or the customer is not sophisticated, and so they just drafted the indemnification paragraph wrong. And no one wanted it to be, you know, that you indemnify them for everything they do ever for things that have nothing to do with your arrangement. But that's what right. it says because someone drafted drafted it 100% in favor of whoever the third party is. Those are things you can change, and hopefully they'll never, they never would have mattered anyway. But if they do, in the, you know, the one time out of 100 when it does matter, at least you've, you've uh, done your homework and you've gotten it to reflect you know, normal commercial legal terms, even if you can't change the true business terms. And is it a read also on your potential partnership? I mean, I feel like depending on what people are willing to change or willing to not change... Yeah, yeah that's, no. a, that's a great point. I mean, if, if you have a part, potential vendor, partner, contractor, whatever, who's not willing to go 50-50 on things that are normal, you know, provisions that normally have reciprocity, you know, so what's good for one side is good for the other side. If someone's not willing to do that, it does suggest that they feel like they have complete power over you and they're going to do what they want because you're smaller or you're just starting out. And I think that can give you some insight into the relationship for sure. Yeah, and, and you got to look out for onerous on market terms as well. And that doesn't necessarily mean the you know, person on their side is bad. It could be their attorneys could be terrible. Right? Cause, Correct. Cause lawyer, right. Lawyers are terrible and we'll put all sorts of things <laughs> that they're, you know, that are highly one-sided that maybe their clients don't even understand. But, but the point is you right. have to worry about business killing terms and some of these agreements, if you aren't careful with it, and then, then I, you know, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but you go up and you're going to do a big transaction. You're going to sell your company. You're going to do a big financing and you find out in due diligence that, did you know this salesman has sole exclusive rights to sell your product in the entire West Coast? Oh, no, I didn't know that was in there, right? Or mm -hmm. this guy has a right to, if you ever break the agreement, to use your software code free of charge for the next 15 years, and this guy owns your house, right? I mean, it's, right. it's, 
Or, or uh, I've seen like the party that is licensing the IP you need, uh, you have to indemnify them for infringement, even though it's their IP. But you have to <laughs> indemnify them for, or, or my favorite one are all these service contracts where you end up indemnifying people for their own gross negligence and anything that they do, anything that they could get sued for as a result of engaging with you, even if it's the result of their own gross negligence, you're responsible for. And now, you know, obviously financing parties and transaction partners hate that stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's, and again, it becomes, you didn't see the mistake when you were making it. You were young company. You didn't want to spend money on a lawyer. And now it's 10 times more expensive when you do recognize that it's an, it's an issue. Celebrate social enterprises that are building good in our community. Join the Metropreneur on Thursday, September 13th for Aspire. Aspire celebrates and honors business leaders doing more with their business. More good, more impact, more community building. More information available on the metropreneur.com forward slash Aspire. So Porter Wright, uh, you are chamber members, um, so we have you here today, and you really do connect businesses with information, resources, and tools, which is exactly what the Columbus Chamber of Commerce does as well. So a great member to have, a great partner to have. How can these tools do you think that the chamber has and that you all have really help these businesses? Let's talk high level, because we've talked about some specific examples and specific pitfalls, but what need is there to be connected to the tools that Porter Wright has that the chamber has in this community? Well, high level, the first thing that comes to mind with the chamber is the ability to get introductions to people who are potential customers. I mean, I think that's what most of the, a lot of the businesses I work with, some, it's a challenge to find the right people to talk to. You know, I'm thinking of a client who's got a software product and it's not, it's not a um, consumer who's going to buy this product. It's like a municipality or a city or a large corporation. And so I, I know for sure that the chamber has a lot of great efforts to um, be able to link people up if you express sort of how, um, who you could talk to, to to be a potential customer. I mean, that's that's the goal, right, is to get customers for all these businesses. And the, the chamber has some great resources for that, for sure. It's also important for purposes of establishing a network, not only for customers, but for referrals for service providers, for other types of business partners, suppliers. You know, I think it's, it's a way to get engaged, right, to have some visibility and to get some um, visibility and insight as to who's out there and who might be helpful, um, you know, to help people grow their business. For right. those third-party contracts, for fundraising exactly. efforts, all right. these things we talked about in the pitfalls, the, the chamber really can address some of those things. And, and there's a lot of established entrepreneurs who you think of as sort of um, institutional business folks who are truly entrepreneurs at heart, who um, are in the community and want to see sort of that next generation there's thrive. A, there's a fine clam bake at the zoo. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to it, I think. Exactly. Yes, so given that too, um, just share with our audience, I mean, you started to hit on it, why Columbus is an ideal place to start and grow a business. It's kind of because of the clam bake at the zoo and everything else that's there, right? I, you know, Columbus is a great growing city that has a incredible business environment. You know, I think there's anything you need here to, to grow a business and to succeed and then to enjoy the benefits of that, right? I mean, I, I, I love Columbus because it's a great place to do business, but also it's a great place to live, you know? I, I know that's very broad, um, but, uh, you know, it would take too long to go into all the specific advantages. Well, I mean, I, I would add that for a lot of things, the price is right, too. I mean, I have a friend who uh, was at Berkeley and uh, got got a license and started a business and is developing a software product and has moved back to Columbus after a few years out there because he can get the same employees out of Ohio State. Uh, he can, uh, you know, they can have a nice cost of living and uh, he can find customers in, in Columbus the same way he could find on the West Coast. So. Yeah, and there's an incredible pool of talent here. 
Ohio State, capital where we sit today, mm-hmm. lots of other colleges and universities around both locally and regionally. And, and this is a place that draws people from all of the great universities in Ohio and, and you know, beyond. So it's a place that pulls talent. Right? And, I, and I would add selfishly uh, service providers, right, like Porter Wright, who have the sophistication, but are not necessarily, are definitely not the same cost as a absolutely. West Coast or an East Coast. We need firm. to convince more companies around here that uh, we can do absolutely everything that they'll get in they Silicon can. Valley yep. or New York at half the price. Of course. So you get a Porter Wright and you get a backyard with a dog. That's right. I mean, right. ultimately that's what and it comes a down to. 20 minute commute. And the clam bake at the zoo. And the clam bake <laughs> at the zoo. I just really enjoyed that. I, 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 I enjoy <laughs> the clam bake. I really do. I love it. I go every year. It's phenomenal. Brett Thornton and Jack Gravel, thank you so much for joining us from Porter Wright today. We appreciate it. Thank oh, you very my, much. My it was pleasure. great. Thanks so much for having us. Well, if you enjoyed today's episode, please let us know by sharing your ratings and reviews. Just search CBuzz on iTunes or your preferred podcatcher. Yes, that's what they call them, podcatchers. And leave, let us really know how we're doing. Leave us that review. This ultimately helps people find our show. That's what it does. On top of that, we also read your feedback and value your ideas as we plan for future episodes. CBuzz is produced in collaboration with Capital University and is recorded at Capital's Convergent Media Center. Really neat place. So we want to thank their talented students, faculty, and staff for helping bring this program to life for our listeners. I'm Michaela Hunt. Thanks for joining us, and I look forward to our next conversation. 